Turn with me, if you will, in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 1. This is our second week in our study of Jeremiah. And I think the most common response, I don't know if it was the most common response last week, but I heard it at least once. Um, what, Jeremiah is the longest book in the Bible, and you only did five verses the first week. Don't do the math. We'll, 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 we will get through this. Um, we are going to take a bigger swath today. Jeremiah chapter 1. We're going to begin looking at verse 6, but I'm going to back up to, to begin our reading at verse 4. This is God's word, Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 4. Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am only a youth, for to all to whom I send you, you shall go, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Jeremiah, what do you see? And I said, I see an almond branch. Then the Lord said to me, you have seen well, for I am watching over my word to perform it. The word of the Lord came to me a second time saying, what do you see? And I said, I see a boiling pot facing away from the north. Then the Lord said to me, out of the north disaster shall be let loose upon all the inhabitants of the land. For behold, I am calling all the tribes of the kingdoms of the north, declares the Lord, and they shall come. And every one shall set his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem against all its walls around, all around and against all the cities of Judah. And I will declare my judgments against them for all their evil in forsaking me. They have made offerings to other gods and worshipped the works of their own hands. But you, dress yourself for work, arise and say to them everything that I command you. Do not be dismayed by them, lest I dismay you before them. And I, behold, I make you this day a fortified city, an iron pillar and bronze walls against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, and the people of the land. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you. For I am with you, declares the Lord, to deliver you. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, as we open our ears and our hearts to hear this morning from your word, would you speak clearly to us and give us understanding? Would you work and do the deep heart work that we all need to hear and to change? to respond to your word, to not live the same as a result of hearing your word. Lord, do that in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, as we began last week, focusing kind of on the introduction, we really only touched the beginning of this call of Jeremiah. Uh, In a sense, it's very conversational. There's response from Jeremiah, and then the Lord responds to Jeremiah And so, as we look at the the first chapter as this kind of overview of his calling, we see that that calling is to be a prophet. 
It's a prophet specifically to Judah, but also mentioned is the nations. So there's this international scope to it. But the response to Judah is, in, it is that it is in particular for the idolatry and the unrepentant sinfulness that Judah had been practicing. The call itself that is recorded in Jeremiah likely took place on more than one occasion. Uh, there's a sense that um, this didn't happen all at once. We can't be argumentative about that. It doesn't change the meaning if it was, but just in terms of the language, particularly in the two visions that we see, that there were possibly at least three different occasions. And I mention this because it points out or highlights the sense of calling that we see in Jeremiah's life, and it also highlights the sense of calling in our own lives. And so the question comes up, do, are all Christians called to something? Are we all do we all receive a calling? I mean, Jeremiah was called to be a prophet. You might say that the pastor's called to pastor the church. Uh, does everyone receive a calling? And then a subsequent question is, if you don't, does that make you any less valuable in the kingdom of God? Well, let me begin by answering this, that all believers are called by God unto faith in Christ. And this is the most important calling that any of us could ever receive. The calling by God to faith in Christ that is manifest in our outward expression of faith is the most important calling that any of us could ever receive. It is the calling to be rescued from our sins, to be saved from something that we could not save ourselves from. It is the calling to be adopted as children of God, something that we... I don't think, understand uh, a fraction of, that we have been made the children of God. Romans 8.30, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Every believer in Christ has been called. However, there are unique callings within the people and among the people of God, like Jeremiah, to serve in a specific role. And there is a sense in which we talk about some roles maybe more than others, but there is a role for all of us, although we may not even know yet what it is. Some some of us may have been believers for years and not realized what it is that God has called us to. Now, I'm not going to go down the rabbit trail of spiritual gifts, but that gets into us, that the Spirit gives us gifts when He regenerates our hearts, and that leads into what He has called us to, to steward the gifts. 1 Peter 4 speaks of this, to steward those gifts well. But to highlight an example of how we see specific roles in Scripture, we might look at Ephesians 4, verses 11 and 12. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. These are not special people who have achieved a certain status before God, who have worked their way up the ranks or who have been selected as promising individuals with good potential. Talk to anyone who has been called to pastor a church, and you will find there are often reluctant men who aren't looking for a platform or for power. We see examples to the contrary of that in our own modern church, the larger church, um, and we, we talk about that quite a bit. But most of the time, like Jeremiah, over time and through various occasions, men struggle with, wrestle with, sense the call, and they finally 
with the blessing of the church, the oversight of the church in our own context, give up resistance and submit to the call. But don't miss the purpose of the call that we see in Ephesians 4. It is not to the title or position that one might attain. What is the purpose of the calling of these who serve in these roles? It is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. That's the emphasis. That's the purpose. Those who are called to these roles are simply tools in the hands of God that they might equip the church, the body of Christ, to be able to do the work of ministry. I point this out because we, and this is a broad generalization. I hinted at it already, but in in the modern evangelical church, we can easily get this wrong. We have professionalized the role of minister and those who would serve vocationally in the church, expecting those people who are in those roles to do the work rather than noting what the text says to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Now, lest you think that I'm picking on anyone here, I don't see this at Christ the King, and I'm really grateful for that. I'm speaking more broadly, so I hope that you understand that from the outset. I'm very thankful for our church and how uh, there's so much service and care. There's often things that go on that I don't even know about and I hear about later of caring for one another. But this is something that is a broader problem, but it's something important for us to understand and, and, and to be aware of. We are all called to be engaged in the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ. None of us is exempt. There are dozens of verses that we could go to that speak to this. The calling that we have received is for a purpose, not simply for our salvation. For example, Galatians 5.13, For you were called to freedom. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. There's your calling. Specifically, I may not be able to tell you what specific role that you've been called to, but I can say to every one of us who are trusting in Christ this morning, we have all been called to serve one another through love. So in this sense, we're all called, not only to salvation, but to serve others. And this would include roles beyond what we've just talked about in Ephesians uh, chapter 4. We might go to other passages and think of officers in the church, but we have to think more broadly than that. Uh, we can think of Glenn's announcement this morning. Greeters, refreshment workers, Sunday school teachers, those who run the sound system. You might think of opportunities that you have in your neighborhood or in the workplace to show mercy and to give care, with the, looking for the opportunity to give a reason for the hope within you. It might be through a giving. Some people have the spiritual gift of giving, and you support missionaries and ministries around the world doing work. Whatever it is, even if you don't think of yourself as a leader, you are called to serve. All of us are. But specifically when it comes to leadership, and since we would think of Jeremiah as a leader sent as a prophet, I want to speak to some of the misunderstandings that happen among leadership in the church today. Think of how many pastors that we've heard in recent years who have sought a platform who have pursued power, even fame and money, in promoting themselves and their ministries. If the Lord ever calls you to another church and you're looking and you find that the pastor is more interested in his title, in his position, or any power that he may have, keep on looking. Those who are called to pastor the church are called to be above reproach. They're called to be sober-minded, self-controlled, 
respectable, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. In other words, church leaders ought to be the first who serve in humility, not seeking their own interests, but looking to the interests of others. That's what leaders ought to look like in the church. As we will see in the book of Jeremiah, the role to which he was called was not glamorous. It came with great heartache, great loss, great pain to him personally. He suffered. Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. He's called that for a reason. He cried a lot. In fact, the book of Jeremiah must be understood with the life of Jeremiah. You can't divorce Jeremiah's life and who he was and what he experienced from the message that he delivers, or you miss the bigger message of the whole book. God takes a nobody from an unknown village in his youth before he has earned any credibility before man that he might boast in his accomplishments. God takes this young man and he calls Jeremiah to serve and to suffer as his prophet to Judah and to the nations. That is what the calling is about. Now, after the initial call that we saw in verse 5 last week, we see that in verse 6, and that's where we begin today, picks up with Jeremiah's response. And it's the response that we've seen from so many in biblical history, right? We might think of Moses, or we might think of, uh, of others who were reluctant to serve. He says, Ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. Now, when we read that statement, our tendency is to focus on the two excuses given. I don't know how, and I'm young. And it's, it's good to recognize that those are excuses that he gives, but I think we need to pay attention to his initial, uh, his initial response or the initial phrase that he gives before he gives those excuses. He says, Ah, Lord God, behold. Now, unfortunately, because we don't talk that way, or at least... I don't talk that way. Um, ah, Lord God, behold. We might say Lord, we might say God. Most of us don't exclaim ah, and most of us don't say behold. Uh, our tendency is to kind of gloss over that and just move right by it. But this is a cry of deep concern on the part of Jeremiah. It is a cry of anguish, arguably in part from being confronted by Almighty God. That's kind of a big deal, that he is having this vision in, in this context where he's receiving this call. And he is confronted by Yahweh. We think of Isaiah's call to be a prophet. And he responds, Woe is me, for I am lost, or I am undone. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Just like Isaiah responds in this way, this is how Jeremiah is responding. Deep distress both by, from being confronted by Yahweh, but also just from the significance of the role. He doesn't see it as a path to notoriety, although he will become known by almost everybody in the land. He recognizes the weight and the responsibility of the task that's being given to him. When a church is considering leaders, new officers to serve, you don't want the guy who seems anxious for power and for recognition or is the one who's campaigning for votes. You want to look for the guy who has the broom and he's already sweeping. You want to look for the guy who's found that person who's sitting by themselves alone and he goes over and talks to them. You want to find the one who is serving. Yeah, Jeremiah gives excuses. They're worth considering, but they are in part, at least in part, rooted more in humility and self-awareness of his inadequacy. 
He's coming to this in humility as a servant. Now to this, Yahweh speaks back and says something that is both weighty and encouraging. First, he explains, well, he says in essence, don't say that. You can't go there. Don't use this as an excuse. He kind of tosses those aside. He's not dismissing them as unimportant. He's just saying, you don't have just grounds. You might think of Paul's exhortation to Timothy, let no one despise you for your youth. Why are these statements given and are we expected to consider them encouraging? It is because if, God's, if God calls you to something, he will equip you. So if, if God leads you to do something, if he puts something on your heart, if he directs your steps to engage in something, you don't get to the, use the excuses, I'm too young, I don't know how, Or whatever. And it's not because you will become great. It's because God will display His power through you for His glory. He'll give you what you need. So God says to him, You don't have an excuse. You can't say that. Then He makes an emphatic statement that is designed to give Jeremiah courage. He says, In essence, you will go and you will say to everyone in every place, I send you. He's not requesting this here. And this isn't divine bullying. This is fatherly encouraging, encouragement. This is fatherly equipping. This is fatherly motivation that he is giving Jeremiah. The Lord continues and says to him in verse 8, Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you. Do not fear, for I am with you to deliver you. Do not fear is one of the most repeated commands in Scripture. Do not fear. Do not be afraid. Why is this repeated over and over? Well, we know why. Because we're so easily filled with fear. We so easily respond with doubt. We so easily become anxious. We fear others won't like us or respect us. We fear we might lose some of the comforts that we enjoy in this life. If we dig really deep, those aren't the Sunday school answers. The Sunday school answers might be a bit more sanctified, but let's plow a little deeper. And let's acknowledge what we're really fearful of is we just don't want to lose comfort. We want life to look the way we dreamed it would look. We want everything to go according to plan. We fear things like losing control because we like to control things. That's what's really there in our hearts. Now, fear isn't always a bad thing. I always want to point this out. God in his mercy has given us healthy fear. My big fear, and you'll see me dance like no one's ever danced. If you hear a rattle and you're out hiking in the woods, the fear that grips your heart, or at least my heart, is a fear that will save your life. If you're up north and you're walking on a frozen lake and you hear the sound of cracks, that fear can save your life. Fear isn't always a bad thing. But the fear that God calls us to renounce, however is the kind that is sinful and unnecessary. It is a fear rooted in the notion that God has lost his omnipotence. Sinful fear replaces our worship of God with the worship of something else. And that's a diagnostic question that we can ask ourselves. Turn that into a question. When you are fearful of something, You thought things were going to go a certain way. You thought life was headed in a certain direction. All of a sudden, you're in the midst of turmoil, and your heart is filled with fear. Ask yourself, what is it that I'm worshiping instead of God? You'll often find that there's something there, a little idol that's crept up. This kind of fear neglects God's sovereign reign over all of life and creation. We make our plans. It's the Lord who directs our steps. 
The command from Yahweh comes with a promise. I am with you to deliver you. And this promise gives Jeremiah strength to know that whatever opposition he faces, and he's going to face a lot of it, his deliverer stands ready to save. It doesn't mean that... And this is what we do. We think that the promises of God are the way that we want life to be. If God promises us something and it's good, it means that life will be easy, that life will go the way that we want. But if you listen already, and we're going to see this more and more, but already God has promised Jeremiah not that he wouldn't suffer, but that he would suffer. And so the promise then that I am with you to deliver you is not that he wouldn't face hardship, but rather in the midst of the heartbreak, he would be there to carry Jeremiah safely to true security in him. In verse 9, it seems like the scene continues and we see this act of God's anointing Jeremiah through the anthropomorphic language of God's hand touching his mouth. Now, we know from the catechism, God is a spirit. He has not a body like men. So this doesn't mean uh, that, that Jeremiah is describing God in bodily form, but rather the vision. He sees something that is the hand of God. It's, and it's in vision form, and he experiences this touching his mouth. So God mercifully takes something that Jeremiah can understand, this idea of anointing, and he experiences it. Isaiah had a similar experience. His mouth was touched with a coal during his calling as a prophet. Then the Lord adds to this action of touching his mouth this statement in verses 9 and 10. Behold, I have set or I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. So Jeremiah's mouth is set apart for this task of delivering this message that Judah would be disciplined, that nations and kingdoms would come against her for her sin. He would be a prophet, therefore, not just to Judah, but his, his prophecy would have international implications. We saw this in verse 5, a prophet to the nations. It is a word given to him that would impact much of the known world in that day. And then he's given these six verbs that describe his mission. Pluck up, break down, destroy, overthrow, build, and plant. Now, I can't help but think when I read these, um, and this is rather a new phenomenon in church history. If you go back 40 or 50 years ago, most churches did not have vision statements. Today, every church is supposed to have a vision statement, a mission statement, uh, a set of, uh, you know, mode of operation. I mean, just all these different kind of... And I, I look at this and I think, this is God's mission to give to Jeremiah to prophesy and it's not very positive. Pluck up, break down, destroy, overthrow, build and plant. The first four are clearly negative. The last two are positive. And this is, is, is kind of interesting. This is the message that he's been given. Now, we understand why in terms of the disciplinary role that's been given to the conquering power. But it's also understandable when it comes to the two positive verbs to build and to plant. When you think about building or planting... What comes first? What do you have to do? You have to till up. You have to uproot plants. You have to dig. You have to remove rocks. You have to move dirt around. You have to, in a sense, destroy before you can plant or build up. Have you ever watched one of these remodeling TV shows? What's the first day? Demo day, right? 
As a guy, that's the best day, right? Because they just go around hitting stuff with sledgehammers. Demo day. you got to destroy before you can rebuild. In our own lives, we understand this, that if we're going to make lasting change, if we're going to see lasting transformation, there has to be uprooting. There has to be breaking up or tearing up. And I'm speaking here of repentance. Often when we think of repentance, we might define it correctly, But often the way we function with repentance is just that it's a change of heart. But repentance is not only a change of heart, it is a turning from sin. There's action involved. And so when it comes to repenting from sin, there's often tearing up that needs to happen. There's often uprooting that needs to take place. I'm not the Holy Spirit, so my examples are only to help us understand. I'm not picking on anybody the Holy Spirit's job, he will do that. But if anger, if anger is something that you struggle with, then James 1 tells us to be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. And so you may just need to stop talking about whatever it is that gets you riled up because that's often what accompanies anger. Or it may be that you need to stop scrolling through whatever it is that makes you so angry or gets you so riled up. You may need to turn off the news station that gets you so upset. You can say the same thing about fear. If gossip is where you struggle, Proverbs 26 says, For lack of wood, the fire goes out, and where there is no whisperer or gossip, quarreling ceases. If it's lust, if it's love of money, if it's coveting what others have, if it's conceit toward others, no matter what the struggle is that we face, Repentance often involves tearing down, plucking up, destroying, and overthrowing the things that prove to be fertile ground for our temptations. We are called to fight sin. We're called to kill it, to mortify the flesh. How seriously do we take sin in our lives? Are we willing to pluck an eye out, to cut off a hand, so to speak, to to take strong action to uproot and kill Sin. That same message that Jeremiah is delivering speaks to us today. Romans 8.13 says this, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. We are called to mortify sin. Now because the people of Judah failed to do this, they did not discipline themselves, they did not put to death the deeds of their bodies, God would send His disciplinary force, which He doesn't yet reveal to, to Jeremiah, but we know it's coming, it's Babylon, to uproot and overthrow so that God might come and plant and build in grace. In the final section, we see these two visions, and I want to cover them briefly. But uh, the, the, the two visions are, are visions in the sense that God is speaking to Jeremiah. Now, there's some question of were the, were the branch and the boiling pot a part of the vision, or did he actually see that? Was, was Jeremiah out walking around and, and looking at things, and, and God simply used things that he saw? We don't know. We're not given that information. It's interesting that Anathoth, the, the village that he's from, was a center for almond tree growing back then, and it is to this day. But the first one is this scene with the almond branch. And God asks him what he sees, and Jeremiah says it, and God responds, You have seen well, for I am watching over my word to perform it. Now, when we read that, it's kind of a, what does that mean? You know, it's, it's not very visionary. It's not very exciting. In fact, I couldn't help but think of a, a person who's working with a child using flashcards. You know, what's this? It's a cat. 
Good. You know, what's this? What's the color? Blue. Good. You know, that's not what God is doing here with Jeremiah. Okay? There's something more that's happening. And, and we don't see it actually in English. It only comes through in Hebrew. There's a word play that's happening in the text here. The words are sheked, which is almond branch, and the word for watching is shakad. They sound very similar, so you understand there's a word play there. But more importantly, in writing, the two words are identical. The consonants are the same consonants for both words, three letters. If you know anything about Hebrew, you know that vowels in Hebrew are simply symbols that are, that are annotated above or below the letters. Uh, dashes, dots, those kinds of things. But only formal writing uses vowel pointings. If you pick up a newspaper in Israel today, there's, it's just consonants. And you have to understand from context and, and really from experience what words mean that, that could be the same, could have the same consonants. And that's, that's how their language works. So in writing, these two words are identical. So what is God making clear to Jeremiah in this case? He is making clear that as, just as Jeremiah sees this branch, just as clearly as the branch appears before him, so he would ensure that his word would come to pass. He's telling Jeremiah, don't doubt this for a minute. What I'm saying to you, what I'm telling you will happen, will happen. Remember the almond branch. It's going to happen. Now, the second vision is a little more descriptive, and it's a little maybe more exciting, a little more what we would expect from a vision. And again, the Lord uses an everyday uh, object, this time a boiling pot, a pot that's sitting on the fire. Now, the word for boiling is not actually boiling, it's windblown, but the best, best kind of English concept we can come up with is the result of the, the wind blowing on the pot because the boiling over is what would happen. And the, the, the reason I want to point that out is the wind blown is, is, is indicating God's judgment. God's judgment is going to come and it's going to, in a sense, incite Babylon. He's going to use Babylon as the tool to then become that boiling water that's going to be the scalding judgment against Judah for their idolatry and un- unrepentant sinfulness. Babylon, again, isn't mentioned yet. We, we don't know this yet, or Jeremiah does, we do, because we can peek ahead, but, uh, Jeremiah doesn't necessarily know this. And, and from, from history, he knows Assyria has been the problem, but their power is waning. He knows that at times Egypt has come up, and there's Philistines and others that have been problems. He doesn't know exactly who this is, but he's told that it's going to come from the north through the symbol. The pot is tilted from the north. And so Babylon is this judging force. Now, you might think in your minds, Babylon's not to the north. Why are they identified as to the north if they're going to be the judging force? Well, Babylon would come from the north. They would come around, as most armies did that attacked this region. They would avoid coming in from the east because of how treacherous the Arabian Desert was. So they would come around and come in from the north, and so that's why this picture is painted this way. Within this promise of judgment, in this vision, is again this assurance of hope that Jeremiah will be preserved and protected. And yet before that, that, that promise comes, he tells Jeremiah, gird up your loins, or the ESV says, dress yourself for work. It's the same Hebrew phrase of gird your loins. If you grew up with that and you learned about what girding your loins was, they wore these long robes, and if they wanted to run or work or do anything like fight, they would tie their robes up, gird up their loins so that they could move and have the movement. There is hard work that is coming for you, Jeremiah, the kind of work that warfare is. It will include danger and harm. 
But Jeremiah would not face ultimate harm. He would be delivered. Additionally, Yahweh warns Jeremiah not to be dismayed before the kings, officials, priests, and the people of the land. He is going to have countless opportunities to be dismayed. But God says to him, don't be dismayed, lest I dismay you before them. These are strong words that are given to him. It's similar to what Jesus said when he said, but whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Strong words. Now, it's interesting where Jesus said that in Matthew 10, just a few verses early. He's talking about fear, Jesus is. And just a few verses, uh, three or four verses earlier, he says, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in heaven. See, the fear of man is often our first response, our initial response when we face difficulty or when we face unexpected change. God reminds us, he reminds Jeremiah and us through this, that when we fear God, we have no need to fear man. So again, I go back to that sinful fear. What is it? It's the replacing of worship of God with the worship of something else. So if you're facing something that has come along that's unexpected, that's rocked your world, and you're fearful, dig into that. Go into that. Find out what it is that you're really placing your hope, confidence, and adoration in. Because it's probably something that's become an idol. God then says to Jeremiah that he will be preserved and protected as he faces the recipients of his message. He says in verse 19, they will fight against you. Notice they, it's not they might fight against you or you may face some difficulties in this journey. They will fight against you. This is what's coming. You're going to face a fight, but they shall not prevail against you, for I am with you, declares the Lord, to deliver you. This promise given to Jeremiah in his calling wasn't that he wouldn't face difficulty. It was actually that he would face difficulty. They will fight against you. But with the promise of suffering and hardship comes the words of deep and abiding assurance. I am with you to deliver you. And these are the same words that God has spoken to his people, often through his leaders, again and again through redemptive history. We see this to Abraham. It's reiterated again to Isaac and then again to Jacob in Genesis. We see the words of promise given of his abiding uh, presence given to, to Moses, to Joshua. We read in Isaiah 41 the, the comforting words, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. We think of Jesus' words given to his disciples before he ascended. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That promise That promise is not only these, that promise is ours. It's to us. He is with us. And I would say, especially in times of trouble, but you might misunderstand that to think that God is further away or or whatever. But, I mean, there is a unique way that he promises to come when we are in trouble. God is always present with us. He's promised never to leave us or forsake us. But Psalm 34, 18 says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Deuteronomy 31.6, be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Exodus 33.14, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Jesus said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And at another time Jesus said, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. 
This helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. All of us who have been called by God's saving grace to trust in Christ in faith have been called on to enter into his service to serve others. And doing so at times may be costly. I mentioned the First Peter uh, 4, this is verse 10 passage. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. There's no omission here. All of us have been given gifts by the Holy Spirit. We're to steward them and use them. Jesus said, the greatest among you shall be your servant. It's an upside-down model from what the world promotes. After he washed the disciples' feet, he said, Do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Our lives are to be lived as a fragrant aroma of service to God by serving others. And this service will at times be costly. There will be loss. We will face difficulties. We have to obey our Savior, who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In this world, you will have tribulation, but take heart. Jesus said, I have overcome the world. The promise of God to us and the command with it is this. Do not fear, for I am with you to deliver you. Let's pray. Father, take this promise Take it and, and, and take it to the, the depths of our hearts because we don't believe it. We're going to walk out these doors and it's not going to be long before we're blindsided by the realities of this life. Hard stuff awaits us. Not today, it'll be here tomorrow. And when we face this, our tendency is not to fear you and trust you, not to believe that you have promised us to be with us to deliver us. But Lord, we're going we're gonna to run to our idols and we're going to be filled with fear because it looks like our idols are getting destroyed. Lord, we cannot do this. We don't have the strength. We're going to forget. So take this truth that you have said to us, this command and the promise, do not fear for I am with you to deliver you. Take it deep into our hearts so that as we face whatever it is that awaits us, that we won't run to those things, that we won't be then filled with fear, that we won't fear man, that we won't fear uh, situations or circumstances, but that we will fear you. And that fear of you, demonstrated by faith in you, will lead to this peace then that you give, this peace that passes understanding, peace that knows that you are sovereign over all of life and creation, that you have not lost your omnipotence, but that you are ruling and moving and working to accomplish your good purposes even when we can't make sense of it. And Lord, may we not turn making sense of these things into an idol itself. We're good at that. Lord, let us not do that. Let us trust you to be God. And may, may we continually acknowledge we're, we're your creation. We're the servants. So we may we not force ourselves to try and make sense of difficult things, but may we come back to who you are, sovereign and omnipotent, but also good and merciful, full of love,
whose faithfulness reaches to the skies, whose mercy knows no end. May we come back to the truth of who you are again and again and deeply believe that you, like you promised Jeremiah, will bring us to safety and security. Give us great hope and courage in these truths today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.